This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's Rebecca Buchanan, a host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Bridget Keyes and Megan Connor, who are the authors of Fandom, The Next Generation. Um, Bridget and Megan, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're excited. Could you talk a little bit about why you wanted to put this collection together and how this kind of how this collection on looking at fandom and generations of fandom come to be? Uh, yeah, uh, I'll start. Um, so Bridget and I have known each other since, is it 2013, 2014? A while. Um, Bridget was doing her PhD and I was doing my master's, um, at, uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And we took a class on television studies together and just kind of connected there and had maintained a friendship, um, at conferences and such. And I think it was at Society for Cinema and Media Studies, um, I was presenting, I remember I was presenting on my dissertation research for the first time on uh, girls' magazines, and it was my first time going to a conference by myself without backup from like a cohort, and I was so nervous, and so my strategy was to just ask everyone, um, did you hear that they're doing a Babysitter's Club TV show on Netflix? Because that news had just come out. That was like my icebreaker to everyone, Um, but after my presentation, um, Bridget and I we're catching up and talking about that. And that kind of was the very original impetus that we were talking about um, this book series for girls, The Babysitter's Club, if you haven't heard of it, from the 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, and how we were so nostalgic for it and the things we wanted to see um, from the reboot. And it was so interesting because everyone, I mean, we were at a media studies conference, but everybody was so familiar with like the language of reboots and, and what types of different things could happen. Like they could make it, you know, like the dark reboot, like, like a Riverdale from the Archie comics or, but we wanted it to be like true, right. To the like kind of pure heart of babysitters club. And that just like really start jump started a conversation for us about how reboot culture has caused fandoms to like just lengthen um, because there's fans of like these original texts from decades ago now having to, are, who are excited for new entries in in their fandoms, but also that brings so many new fans. And how are all these groups of fans kind of negotiating um, this growing space? Um, and so that was our, I think, our original conversation. Um, Bridget, did you want to? Yeah, because I I had grown up with the Babysitters Club books because um, I was just reading chapter books at the time they were first starting to be published. So I kind of grew up with that series. 
Um, and I didn't realize there were any later media adaptations. Uh, and Megan, you're what, I think eight years younger than me. And so there's just enough age difference between us that we had this shared love for this franchise, but our experience of the franchise was completely different um, just based on that generational difference between us. And that's where this whole idea came from. Like, how do people who love the same thing, but what the thing is, you know, it changes over time as there's new iterations, like in the Star Wars franchise or something that's a book becomes a movie and different people understand the text um, to be something totally different, but they all share a love for it and all consider themselves fans of it. And that just seemed like a really interesting question to pursue. Yeah, no, I really love the premise because I have two children who I'm seeing that with, right? I'm seeing them, whether they're loving things that I loved growing up um, or they're loving, yes, new iterations of that. So I'm like, this is really fascinating to see how it is explored um, by like through multiple fandoms in this text. Um, and so you kind of organize the pieces, the chapters in sort of three different parts. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to sort of organize this collection? Yeah, um, I'll take this one. There's no good way to organize things. I think we went through like three or four different categorizations, but essentially what we decided was... Um, there's the first section is really invested in reboots and revivals and nostalgia and the way that um, cultural reception of what we're, we're, we call under the umbrella term reboot culture, right, which also includes like revivals and remakes, uh, how that shifts over time and especially from a gendered perspective. So we have a chapter that looks at um, like uh, the X-Files revival and the way that people talk about um, Gillian Anderson's face and plastic surgery and Botox. Um, and there's a comparative chapter that looks at um, Twin Peaks and the way that um, Kyle MacLachlan has talked about as having aged like a fine wine by comparison to the women who, if they age, we consider that to be negative. And so um, I think that part one is really focused on like what happens with these revivals and reboots when we um, our nostalgia sort of impacts negatively um, sometimes, like the way that we perceive the newer iterations. And then in the second chapter, the second part of the book, um, we're really thinking about like these sort of enduring fandoms. So things that have just continued to produce new texts over time and have welcomed in new fans year after year. Um, I think that um, this section is really thinking about like the longevity of fandoms. Part of part of the book, for me, what was interesting was also to think about how generational fandoms might be maybe growing in an age where franchises just seem to be continuing ad nauseum, like in constantly adding to their canons and exploding and. Um, yeah. So think about like all of the new, I can't even keep track of all the new Star Wars, Star Trek series right now. And I love Star Trek. Like that was my thing. Uh, and now they're so big that I can't keep track of it. Right. So what happens in those cases where there's just never an end to what the canon even consists of? Um, and then in the third part, we really look at like generational tensions. So how does... Um, for instance, someone like me, for whom the Babysitter's Club is only a book series, how do I uh, really hate Megan's Babysitter's Club, which includes things like Claudia Kishi's blog, fashion blog? The 1995 movie is good. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I would never hate Megan. But so we have, um, like, for instance, one of the chapters in that section is about like the Tolkien fandom and what happens for people who um, understand the Lord of the Rings as a book series, uh, as opposed to like the Peter Jackson trilogy. And what kind of new politics enter the picture with those later uh, adaptations and the tensions that they, that produces with the different generations? Like That's what happens when your what happens when your daughter only reads the graphic novels of the Babysitters Club, but she won't read the real books? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so let's talk about these chap. Let's talk a little bit about these chapters then and, and these parts to sort of give folks an idea of what is in the collection. So do we want to let's we'll just go through part by part, right? So in part one, um, do you want to talk a little bit? I know, Bridget, you have you've written one piece in that chapter, but there's um, four different or one piece in that part. Um, there's four different chapters. You want to talk a little bit, either of you, about kind of what is going Going, what chap those chapters are talking about? Yeah, talk about your chapter, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> well, okay, so my chapter does start the book, but I just want to say um, that that is not like an ego move. <laughs> it was just that as we were, um, I was like in the middle of the book, but Megan and I decided we really needed a chapter that sort of framed what the main tensions are, uh, which just happened to be what my piece did. So, I think in in fan studies, we talk a lot about. Um, reboot culture as participating in this sort of ruined childhood syndrome, you know, that people of the original Star Wars from the 70s and 80s think that, you know, The Force Awakens ruined their childhood somehow, uh, or the Ghostbusters 2016, like, ruins your childhood from, of the Ghostbusters from the 80s because it's not authentic or true to what that original text was. Um and so that's like one move that we see frequently in generational fandoms. And then the second that I address in my chapter is the idea that actually people are clamoring for more progressive representation. Um, so something like the 2016 all-women-led Ghostbusters is very exciting, or The Force Awakens with the introduction of Rey is really exciting. But those people are also really dissatisfied in the end because what they expect in terms of progressive representations and values is never enough. And so what I think is really interesting is that we actually have these two these two camps in fandom that we think of as like diametrically opposed, but they actually all share a common interest, which is that nobody ever seems satisfied with reboots. So that's sort of the first chapter. Your turn, Megan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, and the other chapters in in the first section, um, we have two that talk about the X Files. Uh, Beth Ann Jones is talking about it. Uh, Bridget mentioned uh, briefly uh, the Scully effect, right? That the show was originally pitched, well, not pitched, but like that this one of the like fandom like connections that girls and women really had was that it was making women want to be interested in STEM fields by seeing Scully um, as this like badass heroine that was solving crimes. And I have not watched the X-Files. I'm sorry if that's ever. No, I've never seen it. I feel like we should have had this conversation three years ago when we were putting this book together, but I can't not, believe that. Yeah. Not even the, like the movies. No, I've seen none of it. Oh yes. my gosh. But yeah. I mean, I know of it, right? Because it it permeates culture so deeply. Yeah. Um, and so 
I, I think those chapters, Beth Ann Jones and the following one by Sh- uh, Siobhan Lyons are great because they're coming at um, this text from like slightly different angles and they're in such good conversation. Although Siobhan is also talking about Twin Peaks. Um, but both of them are interested in the ways of which the, these shows have continued on and how older fans um, are experiencing them differently, especially reconciling the fact that the actors are aging um, and that the reception, um, as Bridget mentioned, is totally different and very gendered um, to these characters um, as they um, are reintroduced over time. Um, and one one of the- I think Bethians makes a really interesting point too, like Megan mentioned the Scully effect and this idea that um, Jillian Anderson's character, Dana Scully, is like encouraging girls to study science. And like that seems like such a positive and wonderful thing. Um, and what Bethan finds is that um, the text does so much work to remove Scully's agency, especially with regard to her body. So things like forced pregnancy uh, and then you know, just storylines where she's abducted or drugged or whatever. And so um, that like, I, you know, this this text that was supposed to be so uplifting in the 90s, um, suddenly when we look back on it now from today's lens and from the revival, it's like, why are you doing all this work to undermine this incredible female character you created? Um, so she really, she finds like all of these sort of hateful messages launched at the series creator for not understanding his own text, right? And even a response from Jillian Anderson where she's like, yep, I'm with you guys. This was, why did they do this to me? <laughs> Well, and I love the comparison too. Uh, I, I were not necessarily the comparison, but I just love the juxtaposition of Twin Peaks and the X Files, and thinking about that. Um, and then the last uh, chapter in that section um, by um, Andrew Skihill. 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 Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, I love this chapter because it's about Gem and the Holograms, um, which just isn't that studied academically and was one of the formative texts of my childhood. Um, So, you know, Gem and the Holograms was like a children's cartoon in the 80s, and it was remade into a live action film in 2015. Um, And similar to sort of what Bethann finds, um, Andy notes that like, in doing the live action film, they totally took this story about a woman and girl power and like this totally queer themes that permeate the kids cartoon and kind of totally undercut uh, undercut all of it. So now uh, Jem has like, or Jerrica, I guess her her, her true persona, Gem is her stage alter ego, but Jerrica has a boyfriend. Uh, the boyfriend owns the record company who gives them a record deal. So instead of her like launching into fame, it's sort of nepotism. Um, it just really like seems like the people who made the movie did not understand what attracted fans to the text in the first place and certainly not what had kept especially its queer fandom going for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and I just think it's a really fun chapter. People should read it because there's just such little work on gem and it was truly, truly, truly outrageous. Mm-hmm. And I do agree that it was, I was very excited about the film and then very depressed. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, so again, like showing my age, I had never seen the cartoon and I only saw the movie and I was like, Oh, this is cool. I like this movie. It has, you know, like Hannah Montana vibes. Right? Um, and so I think 
that gets at kind of one of the, again, showing our age differences, but gets at one of the cool, larger themes of the book as well of that we are trying to kind of, we have these generational labels, right? Um, And that are pretty well known, right? And they divide groups all the time that we are labeled by, oh, well, I'm Gen Z, so I part my hair this way versus uh, millennials part their hair this way. But that those are, you know, arbitrarily in some sense constructed labels by um, these sociologists. I think Strauss and Howe are the ones that have the most uh, well-known like aid or specific birth year designations, right? Um, But that there are other ways that our authors try to break up these um, generations and groups of fans. Um, I know Beth Ann talks about original generation fans, second wave, um, and the new wave fans in this section in particular. But but I think what's great is that they talk about it in terms of age, but also technological entry points. Um, because, you know, I don't, was Gem, Gem and the Hologram streaming anywhere, the TV series? So like, I didn't watch it because there was no way for me to access it because I wasn't the right age to watch it when it was on. And so the the way that things are available on different platforms is definitely impacting how different groups of people um, are coming to text for the first time. And that is not reflective of their age at all. So we could get a whole bunch of new fans that span, you know, boomers, Gen Z, Gen X, whatever, but it's all because, you know, something just got added to Netflix at a certain time. Mm-hmm. So you so you move into right and, and that's kind of that gener the that second part the generation of enduring fandoms and there's seven chapters I th- right I think seven chapters in that section including yours Bridget or Megan sorry Bridget yours was in the first one so can you talk a little bit about um th- some of those chapters and what you were trying to do in that part and Megan I don't know if you want to start with Babysitters Club and yeah Babysitters Club. <laughs> Um, yeah, so aside, um, alongside reboot culture, right, we're talking about things that just have this like growing entry of canon um, that is long and long. And I joke, I joked with my students last week that um, I showed them an episode of Grey's Anatomy and I was like, I've had a longer relationship with Grey's Anatomy than anyone except for my immediate family members because we're on <laughs> season 19 now, right? Um, so it's been going on for two thirds of my life. Crazy. Um, so yeah, we wanted to look at ways in which um, fans negotiate not only um, you know new entries to their text, but how their fandom like changes over you know the idea of like life course fandom and how we've had like lots of other fan studies scholars have looked at this the ways that your fandom may like kind of like wax and wane over time. Um, but I think one of besides my chapter, <laughs> well, talk, my favorite, talk about your chapter because it's really fun and it has all the best photos from the book. Yes, <laughs> that is true. I did include a photo of my childhood homemade babysitter's club costume with the little puffy paint got the phone number for the babysitter's club on it um you have from, to tell think, them which babysitter you went oh, as. i was a christy i was the <laughs> leader of the club. um yeah and <laughs> one of i one of the things i'm really fascinated by is um so my chapter 
just to back up, my chapter is um, kind of like uh, an autoethnography looking at my own fandom of the Babysitter's Club since I was a kid to now that it's been, you know, reinvigorated in part because of like my academic interest in um, girls media, um, but also um, trying to tie it to my own like identity as a queer woman and to try to trace that and find clues of it retrospectively. Um, And in doing that, I also found all these other different groups of people who also identified with the babysitters club in a very specific way um, and had kind of created their own like ancillary ancillary texts of like fandom for the babysitters club. So one of the most prominent and famous characters is Claudia Kishi. um, And there is a Netflix short documentary on the topic created by Sue Ding um, about how her specific depiction of a Japanese American character um, Claudia was just like, there was no one that was not, she, she wasn't a character. She wasn't racist. She wasn't, she, she had like so many different personality traits. Like she was about art. Um, she had a messy room that she had candy in. She was bad at spelling and math, but also she was like very specifically Japanese, um, in her relationship with her family and especially her grandma. And so, uh, Sue Ding's documentary talks about the fact that there's so many Asian American creators or fans at the time who have become media creators because they gravitated towards Claudia and then we're like, we want to create more representations like this. Um, so Rebecca, you mentioned the graphic novels and um, the person who makes those, she was an original fan. Um, she's interviewed in the documentary that she wanted to be part of bringing the babysitters club to this next generation. Um, and then also there's this thing um, called the babysitters club club, which is a recap podcast of the babysitters club, but it's hosted by two men. Um, and so I also explore kind of like my disinterest um, in that because uh, I'm like, no, this experience is not my experience. Um, but it has such a large fan base of people who are interacting with the books for the first time and are just like, finding different things about the books that they uh, gravitate towards that make them interesting. They kind of take this kind of like highbrow literary analysis approach to them in some ways that, but I talk about how just my, that is not my experience of the books. And so I instead was like, I'm gay now. Christy is obviously gay because (laughs) she and I find this picture of myself dressed up for Hall- Halloween as an eight-year-old and I'm like did I know that <laughs> um, and yeah so that's pretty much my chapter um but I really I wanted to also talk about um the chapter on the Backstreet Boys um by Simone Dreisen um because I find that so great also about how these like early fans of the Backstreet Boys in the Netherlands that she talked to, how they kind of renegotiate their, their fandom of like a boy band as adult women and how that changes for them and how, in how they're able to participate in the fandom. And it creates different meanings for them as adult women. And one of the things I really liked is they're like, now I have adult money to spend because the Backstreet Boys like had like a cruise you could go on. 
missed out on that. I thought it was really interesting how her, um, the fans she researched, like sort of negotiated that. Like they have a lot more money to drop on concert tickets and like backstage experiences, but um, they also have like kids and jobs. And so how do you, you know, like you, and one, on the one hand, you have a lot more freedom as an adult to express your fandom. But on the other hand, you have these like grown up responsibilities that get in the way. And it just seems like an interesting tension to me. Yeah. And I mean, we're seeing that this week with the Taylor Swift pre-sale tickets, right? And the number of people who are like, well, now I'm going to drop $1,000 on this Taylor Swift ticket because I can finally afford it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and and I've seen that too. Like, well, Harry Styles just came through Chicago land area a couple weeks ago. And some of my students were like, I can't even afford a nosebleed seat, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, like trying to navigate and figure that out. And I've just decided that I just train my children to be fans of things I'm fans of so that we can just, you know, do everything together. <laughs> and that works really well. Yeah. <laughs> so what other ones, what other chapters in here did you, um, do you want to talk about or highlight since this is sort of a big section? I, I want to talk about Neta Yonovich's chapter on um, sci-fi fans and the ways that fathers pass on their sci-fi fandom to their daughters. Uh, Netta also did like a study of specific fans that she interviewed. And it was really interesting to hear how, um, just sort of how this, the genre that we associate with like a masculine identity, um, how fathers like tried to share it with their daughters. And in some cases that like resulted in women becoming adult sci-fi fans who then try to pass it on to their own children. Um, she was looking specifically at Dr. Who fans, uh, and star Wars. Um, and, uh, in some cases it's like these fathers were trying to share their love of like Dr. Who with their daughters, but then also like, in many ways we're reiterating um, these gender norms that were maybe like harmful without realizing it. So like they would, you know, I think one of her, the fans she interviewed talks about like my dad would watch Dr. Who with me and my brother, but then my brother was the only one who would get action figure toys. I wouldn't, I wasn't allowed to get those. Those were for boys. Right. So, but it's a really interesting case study in this idea of like intergenerational passing of fandom, like you with your children, Rebecca, um, and Netta, I just want to give a shout out because Netta, this research is part of like a larger project that she's done and her book just recently came out um, and it's called uh, Women Negotiating Feminism and Sci- Science Fiction Fandom. And it has a really beautiful cover and it just came out. So everyone should go read that book as well. She can come and talk to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, and we, I love all of our chapters equally and I love all of our contributors equally. Um, this section just has so many, but Megan, I think we should also just mention Meredith's because it's really fun. Yeah. And Meredith has, I, I just love the language she uses to differentiate between different groups of fandom. So she's looking at um, Jane Austen fandom and she divides the fans into book first versus screen first, which I think is uh, such an interesting tension for um, that can be, that language should be used in so many more future studies of, of these reboot and like sprawling mm-hmm. franchises, right. That now have, you know, Although, you know, I do have, I read like the Buffy books that were like ghost written. So it's not a new thing. I'm not trying to say it's a new thing. Um, I don't think I even knew there were Buffy books. Oh, Oh, there is a Buffy game that um, reading, it's like reading a book to try and play the Buffy game, which my son and I did try because I got a garage sale for like 50 cents. We tried once. 
we did it but it took like four hours just to play the game and read the directions so there's yeah you see megan this is another example where our age difference produces this media generational difference right for me bsc is books and for you it's also media and for me buffy is strictly a television series and for you it's like this larger world yeah yeah well and also the first time i watched buffy was i was a beta tester for hulu when it first came out and that was one of the first shows they had available and that's how i watched it the first time never on live tv but anyway uh meredith's chapter is about austin fandom and the differences between people who come to the books first versus the differences of people who come to screen adaptations first because we have all these different like movies and miniseries and she also concentrates on on one of my favorite adaptation, which is the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, a YouTube series from I think the early 2010s is when it was airing or they were putting it out um, and how um, these fan groups kind of like encourage each other in terms of like um, the Jane or the, the fans of Lizzie Bennett Diaries um, that is set sets the uh, Pride and Prejudice in present day um, uh, Elizabeth is a grad student, I think, in that adaptation. And in making it more accessible um, and in, in a contemporary style encourages the fans to be like, yeah, I can read Jane Austen um, that maybe had a reputation of being like a little bit more challenging or like a book you'd read in school and not for pleasure. Um, and I just love that the division and that back and forth. <laughs> So how about um, part three with this generational tension? So you sort of, you know, end with that third part and have two, three, four, I think four chapters in that section. So can you talk a little bit about um, what some of those chapters and what you're trying to do in that part? Dan Golding's chapter starts this section and he studies Star Wars fans. Um, And I think, you know, the Star Wars fandom is maybe overstudied in media and fan studies. Um, But I really like his chapter because he has these interesting ways of um, providing a taxonomy of the generations based on specific canonical developments, but also tied to specific political and cultural developments. So if we think of like the original Star Wars trilogy as part of a Reagan era, what does that mean in terms of what we expect of the text or what kind of values we think the text is either representing or pushing against compared to, for instance, um, the later stuff that came out that we would think of as part of like a Trump era, you know? And so what are today's cultural values that it's pushing against? And that to me seems like such a more interesting and compelling way of organizing media generations than by age, you know, like what are the dominant themes of our time um, that a text is responding to? So that's Dan's chapter. Um, Maria and Don, Maria Alberto and Don Walsh-Thuma, conducted this survey of Tolkien fans and they, their chapter is this really lovely summary of findings about um, specifically Tolkien fan fiction and the ways that it evolved over time as social politics progressed um, and some of the tensions that get created along the way, for instance, once um, slash fan fiction started becoming more popular, uh, even though it was seen as like inauthentic to, you know, Tolkien's books, right? And so how do fans sort of negotiate that? Um, 
I think similarly, um, Ellen's chapter on the Sherlock Holmes fandom provides this like really lovely history of Sherlock Holmes fan societies and um, their slow introduction <laughs> of women members that took a very long time to happen. And what happens to those societies once they open up to new possibilities and new kinds of members? And I just think there's something really interesting to be um, thought of in Sherlock Holmes fandom between the people who, like Megan was saying, the book firsters, right? People who uh, would have originally read Conan Doyle's books before there were any media adaptations. Like how different is that fandom than someone who came to Sherlock Holmes because of Benedict Cumberbatch in the 2010s? Um, and then the final chapter, we picked Melanie Bordas' chapter to conclude the book because it's very positive and very uplifting, which is what we wanted overall the tone of the book to be, even though there's a lot of generational infighting that's mentioned along the way. Um, and Melanie looks at how people mentor each other to be good fans and participate in these fan communities. So um, Megan might not realize that it's inappropriate to talk about the 95 Babysitter's Club movie. And then I, as the older fan in the community would gently counsel her that we only talk about the original books, right? So those are the sorts of things Melanie's looking at, as well as like the ways that fans united. They're all laughing at me right now. <laughs> the ways, um, also like the ways that fans unite um, across divides to support certain political movements that they feel are really important, like the Trevor Project um, after, um, you know, so many like deaths of queer characters on TV. So it's just like this... I think it's this lovely piece to conclude the book. Megan, you can maybe say more whether you agree with me, but to me, it's like I, I there's so much in media and fan studies that we talk about the ways people don't get along or the ways that um, certain fandoms like Star Wars can be dreadful. And I love that we conclude the book with showing like the ways that fandom can actually transcend generational divides and actually do good in the world. Like it can leave the confines of fan spaces and like actually participate in philanthropy and, and and doing good works. So what do you so you have this this collection together, you have this great collection. Um, what are your kind of hopes for this collection or thinking about fan studies in the way that you have with this collection as um, people move forward, they read this, we're thinking about, you know, things that people are doing. So what are your hopes? Well, I think we definitely uh, pitched it originally as as being a conversation opener um, because when we started talking about this and kind of looking around, we we're like, oh, there's not a lot of people who are talking about this right now. And so we wanted to open um, the conversation. So uh, and then also, you know, a collection as, as wonderful as it is to have what 14, 15 contributors, um, that's still just like a small fraction of um, the number of perspectives, methodologies um, that we could include. And so definitely, we're not saying that our collection is the definitive, like be all end all on this topic. And we're hoping that people will be able to take from these chapters and build on it and apply it to other um, fandoms, other groups of fan identities um, that are experiencing these um types of moves um as their fandoms grow over time um yeah Bridget do you want to yeah we um we definitely hope this is the start of larger studies into generational and transgenerational and intergenerational fandoms um and for us personally I think the project um led to lots of 
lots of follow-up questions. Um, so Megan's chapter, especially, you know, thinking about how someone's identity can actually shift and change over time with different media adaptations and generations um, has led us to start to think about our next project, um, which will be specifically about that. Like, how does the media we consume enable us to form our identities, particularly thinking about queer identities, um, and enable us to come out and maybe shape our identities over time as the media we watch and consume grows and changes and opens up new avenues for us. Um, but Megan was supposed to be the one to say that. I just stole her thunder. Okay. Well, you know, that was, I mean, my final, my, my, you know, ultimate question is how is that kind of like, what's next? What are you working on? So yes, Megan, if you want to talk more about that or add anything else to kind of next project. Sure. Yeah, no, that is our next project. That's the big reveal is uh, about queer identity formation um, and media techs. And you had mentioned Harry Styles. And so the image that I already have, like, um, on my like folder for, for ideas for this is I had seen, um, an image from a Harry Styles concert that a girl like in the pit was holding up a sign that was like, my mom is in this balcony section. Can you tell her I'm gay? Oh. Um, so ask for, to, to have this intense fandom for Harry Styles that you want him to be part of your coming out process. Like that visual to me was just so striking. And so I have that like, um, in my folder of ideas for this next book or whatever this project turns out to be um, as kind of my inspiration. Awesome. Do you, Bridget, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Or No, that's a, lo- that's a lovely wrap up to <laughs> well, what we were talking about. Yes. Like, so it has been really great. I mean, I could probably talk about fandoms and generational fandoms forever. Um, But like, it's been really great talking with you about this collection. And I think the collection has a great variety of fandoms it looks at, texts it looks at. And so there's a little bit for everyone in there. Um, So thanks again, um, Bridget Keys and Megan Connor, who have put together the collection fandom, The Next Generation. Thanks for talking with me for new books and popular culture. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much.